This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable! From the Embassy Row virtual studios uh, in the crap part of the Upper West Side of New York City, and from the crap part of West Hollywood, from a office in my guest house, Rog, it's the Men in Blazers podcast. Oh, we back! Like, well, well, nothing. Nothing's back, David. <laughs> nothing's back. No. The Belarusian League. Yeah! But that never went away, really. We're all knee-deep in that. And you can listen to that in our other pod. I want everyone to know we are not we are not bandwagon jumpers on the Belarusian League, are we, David? No, not at all. Been... Not at all. Been watching it for years. Yes! Years. Yes! All these Johnny-come-latelys coming onto our turf. In all seriousness, uh-huh. we pod with, with heavy heart for reasons... We'll discuss at the end of the pod. I will just say for now, Davo, it is so good to hear your voice. Not just because I'm totally sick of mine. <laughs> I know that's right. Are you wearing your headphones all day? Take your headphones off, Roger. You don't have to listen to your voice as much. Oh, Davo, I pod, therefore I am. We're in tough times. The pod and football bring what other people who are not me, because I don't fully understand the nature of this word, but bring a sense of normalcy to the world but how is los angeles quarantine lockdown life dave well i mean look i'm very fortunate i live in um you know notwithstanding this is the crap part of west hollywood it actually do you know what i've just realized i might not live in west hollywood at all rog i might be on the border of los angeles and west hollywood there is some dispute going on with the various cities um so uh and then maybe i'm not in the crap part of los angeles it's tougher to say that um but i've got a lovely spread here i've got a you know, a main house and a guest house separated by garden. That is my uh, joy. I've inherited that from my dad, a love of gardening and uh, trees and flowers and shrubs and, uh, and various associated flora and fauna. So I'm very fortunate. You know, we don't go anywhere. Uh, I did go out to the grocery store late last night, uh, made a little dash, but it's odd. I mean, the streets are deserted. There's no traffic. Um, It's just like anyone else who's living in lockdown. It's a very weird sort of Armageddon, post-apocalyptic version of the cities that you live in and love. Oh, we are living in surreal times, David. New York City, beautiful, beautiful New York City, is, as we pod, awash with well, darkness, really. But it's been, at the same time, heartening to witness and experience. As serious as the threat is here, and the threat is is beyond serious. You know, We've got a field hospital set up in Central Park, the Empire State Building is flashing red at night, an enormous siren signaling the danger which is all around us. And I, I've started, and this really pains me, the saddest notes page on my iPhone of all time. I'm sure many of you, dear listeners, have the same. One with a list of friends that I've promised to take out for a drink at the first chance we get because they've either had coronavirus or worse, lost a loved one to the scourge. And I don't want to forget who I've made that promise to, because there are now so many of you. But despite that, Dave, the city's not lost any of its swagger, its spirit, its sense of self. And if anything, this virus, it seems to almost enhance the humanity. When I do walk around the city, the strengths... The wonders of the human condition are revealed, and I'm genuinely drawing strength from that, David. Mm. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. I mean, I haven't seen enough people to know if that's happened. 
um, here in Los Angeles, but I'm sure it has. One thing I would say, it's been a very, anybody who's any West Coast GFOPs know that it's been a very rainy winter again for the second year running. And just, there is a beauty in Los Angeles now that in Southern California, now that the smog has lifted because there's no traffic, um, you know, the trees, the bougainvillea, the pombago, the um, just the, the wildflowers, it is quite staggeringly green and beautiful. And these are the things as we go outside and, you know, take our dogs for a walk or have a daily run, uh, living at street level in Los Angeles, which you never really do other than behind the glass and steel of your car. Um, I'm just wondering at the beauty of the place, honestly. Oh, I'd bite your arm off for some wild plants right now. I, I've been drawing strength from from human matters, GFOP calls, voicemails, ravens. I, I've tried to keep as positive as possible, keep morale high, as high as possible this first two weeks. I will say, though, I mean, as many of you know, lockdown life, what does it revolve around? 40% of it is, well, really just doing the dishes. And every night, I wash the dishes with my kids and they like to put on the the NHL on NBC music and just rock out to it while we're doing the palm olive. <laughs> and, and then I will admit, I'll only tell you this, Dave, no one's listening to this. On Thursday night, one of them made, oh, I think it was a kind gesture. It was a terrible mistake. They put on the Champions League anthem. Oh. And... I was there, rubber gloves on, little dish brush, and it was that lull of choir and control pump right before they ascend to the champions. That no, part. Roger, it's not the chat. It's the champions. Yeah, not right the before that the part, you know when they the do like champions. A, that, that part where they the, they're like mushrooms. Yes, the champions. champions. Oh, product placement. Yes, bit yeah. like uh, Mr. Pillow. They um the champions, but they do. The composer didn't really know what to do with a little bit, so he just had the choir kind of swish around for a little bit. Oh, that bit. And I will admit, freestyling. It, yeah, in front of my kids, that bit just got me. Just got me. I just lost it. Buckets, bald, like a baby. I miss it so very much, David. Could you please send me a video of you doing the dishes? Yeah, I've never, I've never seen domestic Rog. I've oh. never seen you do any chores. You I never, didn't know that was one of your chores. You can't mentally picture me wearing a little penny that says "Kiss the Cook," and no. underneath, I'm not wearing anything else apart from that little penny. you wear gloves to do it you wear gloves for dramatic license i do mate yeah what color are they Uh, whatever color you want (laughs) (laughs) i'm just trying to picture you i'm I'm just trying to picture you you doing this my wife will admit that in the past I've been, when it comes to all matters, I'm probably the master of of token gestures. Uh-huh. But I've definitely, in this lockdown life, I've been, I've been trying to, you know, go beyond the token gesture. Whatever grade is up from token gestures, not being really helpful, definitely not carrying my own weight. But beyond that, I've been exploring the terrain beyond the token gesture. And I think I'm a better person for it. <laughs> it's like crossing Dumber Hills. It's the frontier thesis of the Bennett household. I love it. Oh, man. Um, we better wonderful. get into a toast before I get into trouble. Yeah. Give us a toast, Rog. Give us a token toast. Oh, mate, I want to raise my first third bud of the day 
to, well, really to the GFOPs who are inspiring us day in, day out at Men in Blazers. We are still very much on war footing at MIBHQ. A pod a day keeps the blues away. The daily newsletter constantly pumping out the printing presses. Yep, the newsletter, that daily constant letdown. Our mailbag, though, is really overfloweth. And I want to shout out to a couple of GFOPs in particular who have who've really just inspired us all here. Uh, over the past week, Thomas Brennan of Cincinnati, oh, the remarkable law enforcement officer who's taken it upon himself, a Liverpool fan I believe he is, to drive around the distilleries of Ohio and collect hand sanitizer to bottle and redistribute to the city's homeless at-risk population. The, the, the photo on his GoFundMe page, which I will say it's heartened me how many of you GFOPs flocked to support his work on that GoFundMe, has a photo of him in a Men in Blazers suboptimal sweatshirt. God love him. We all have our our weak links, Thomas. I hope we are yours. You are an inspiration. But I'm also blown away by all the doctors, nurses, hospital workers who've been dropping notes to us describing their lives right now and the respite football, even our crap talking about football, brings to the savagery of their working days and nights. Particular shout out to Womp. Dr. Peter Hakim of Salem, Oregon. We've just popped his photograph up on our Instagram. He sent a beautiful photo of him about to enter the operating theatre in his scrubs, onto which he's affixed a huge, enormous Arsenal crest. And he wrote, Hello from the front lines of the emergency room. Had to find a way to keep sane without football. What a gent, Davo. My lord, one thing even troops in DT could agree on is that you are a hero, Peter Hakim. You are all our heroes, as are all the emergency workers, delivery people, supermarket workers. Your courage inspires us. And I raise this Bud Fam Blood Fam to you. As I said yesterday on the pod, when this is all done, there should be a monument sculpted in your honour to all of you on the National Mall. Your service and sacrifice in our nation's hour of need is just awe-inspiring. Courage. Can I ask you... If you were about to have an operation in normal times, Davo, back in normal times, cast your mind back there. You, Davo's about to have a massive operation. Maybe you're getting your balls tucked, your annual ball tuck, or something like that. And the last thing you see is the doctor reaching over to begin. Aforementioned ball tuck. And he has a huge, enormous Arsenal crest on his hat. What would you think? Look, this is what I'm thinking. If it's not an Arsenal, it's, if it goes well... If everything's smooth, perfect conditions, no bad decisions, no complications, it's going to be an excellent operation. What I'd worry about the Arsenal inhabiting my surgeon is if the going gets a little tough, there's a slightly dodgy call, there's a hard tackle in midfield. You know, they don't like it up them. And I'd worry about that uh, with Arsenal. All respect to Peter. Um, but I'd worry a little bit about Arsenal. I mean, but at the same time, it's not like I want Burnley. I don't want to be stitched up um, you know, it looking like a sort of, uh, you know, bad crochet work from World War One. I. I want it to be, um, <laughs> I don't want Burnley. Who do you really want? What is the hat that you want? You don't really want a showboating Man United or Chelsea fan. You know, I guess new Liverpool would be quite good. But you know, there is a sense that if you're not a Liverpool fan, you certainly will walk alone. Um, I want the walls of doctors. The walls of doctors. They know what they're doing. Yeah. They know what they're doing. They've got a plan. They execute that plan unbelievably well. I just, my last words as I went under, 
Peter would be, please God, let you be the Uber of doctors and not yeah. the Socrates. I hope I'd get that out before I go. <laughs> or even that. worse, the David Louise. That would be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be the funniest ball took ever, though. I know. How oh. comes I lost my left leg? Yeah. <laughs> It would be it would be odd. Okay, Rog, you've been tracking all the headlines and writing about them in the Raven. Subscribe at meninblazers.com. What is the latest coming out of Blighty about when the Premier League could return and how they would possibly be able to squeeze in all the games? Oh, Davo, another day, another radical Premier League restart plan floated. Today the Daily Mail reported the Premier League powers that be are said to be debating a best-case scenario of a behind-closed-doors finish starting the season in May and hoping to finish by July 12th, four days ahead of a very terrifying cut-off date, July 16th, when it said they have to return up to $942 million to broadcasters. That is some, that's some Guy Ritchie heist money right there, Davo. I mean, it's a wild time to be a football fan. There's no matches there's not a ball being kicked outside of Belarus but news is flowing at nosebleed pace and it is unprecedented there's never been a scenario like this or provisions to work out how you deal with us like what kind of external reality before has just made football stop dead in its tracks so we're kind of ricocheting between the extremes of stories saying football's business model is forever broken Premier League is about to financially implode and then you turn the page and you read rumours of Jaden Sancho to Manchester United for $144 million. It's the best of times. It's the worst of times, Davo. How do you feel about this plan? There's going to be a conference call this Friday. The 20 Premier League team execs are going to talk about this. The clubs isolating in hotels, away from their families for two months, playing all the 92 games that remain in two or three venues with fixtures every day. I mean, does this seem just completely putative, almost like science fiction thinking? Or how real should we be processing this right now? Well, I do think that anything that is being mooted right now is putative, is because, you know, even this cutoff date for the payment of these television contracts of almost a billion dollars in, in television contracts, it's the extent to which these contracts are even still valid you know throughout the world of business and entertainment and sports and even something i know unfortunately quite a lot about right now will and probate and you know uh, estate taxes everything is up in the air because we're living in a world that has been completely denormalized and no one understands i do think that quite beyond the contractual implications i think that people in football owners of clubs and beyond the economics of the whole thing, they feel a great responsibility to continue to play out this season and to finish it and to get back on track for next season. So I think they will come up with some kind of solution. I think getting 20 Premier League owners, to well, more than 20 because multiple teams are owned by several people, but to get them all to agree on a plan is going to be really hard. And, you know, with new management at the Premier League, um, I think it's going to be particularly difficult, but I'm trusting that the big clubs certainly will get together and agree and then force, you know, every other club and, and the common sense will prevail. I want to talk through a couple of different dimensions with you, though, Dave, on this. I mean, first, let's put aside the morality of it all. As we always have on this podcast, we've always shunned morality. Let's also shun the feasibility for one moment. 
What do you think about the prospect, Davo, as a spectacle from an event perspective? Because you, Davo, are my big event expert. You are the CEO of all big events. Do you like the sound of a spectacle? Just football every day, closed doors, but football back. I like it way better than no football back. Um, and we're not living in a perfect world. I mean, I think this is where we can't, you know, we can't build this false comparison to what it was before. It won't be like it was before for a while. Um, and I don't know how long a while is, but it won't be like that. I can tell you, look, this is my experience. I just produced Who Wants to Be a Millionaire with no audience. And the episodes are great. The set is beautiful. Jimmy Kimmel is really good. The celebrities are fantastic. The game is superb. They're playing for real money. There are stakes there. Would it have been better if I'd had a full audience there? Definitely. It would have been a better spectacle. But it's the best available who wants to be a millionaire in prime time that we possibly could have dreamed of making. And my sense is that there are still stakes there in the Premier League. There is still elite talent, notwithstanding they are not going to be particularly match fit to go and play. And we still have the greatest league in the world. It will be better than anything else out there. And I'm talking about you, the Belarusian League. It's going to be better than you. <laughs> I've got to say, I'd bite your arm off for football that's better than the Belarusian League. All those tweets <laughs> that you have to read about Shakespeare writing Lear, Macbeth, Anthony and Cleopatra during the plague. I bet you he was just hate writing because the whole time he was jonesing for football to come back to. Huge Stratford Town fan, no doubt. Morality, though. Indulge us. Should they do it, Davo? Because football doesn't exist in a bubble. I mean, the, the, there's a lockdown in Britain that's being discussed right now as a possible six-month quarantine for the nation. Would the Premier League's return be seen as a massive boost for national morale when it's most needed? Or a selfish act diverting public resources when the cash-strapped British National Health Service is still battling to stay afloat every day? Yeah, but I don't know in whose interest that loss of money to international television networks and the the uh you know the loss of that tax basis of profit for you know uk you know customs and revenue is is worth that rog i mean it would be I think it, the, if the Premier League doesn't play again and they pay all that money to international television networks, that money's completely lost from Britain whatsoever. So I don't think that's good for the National Health Service either. If the latter does occur and the season is voided, to me it is a dark scenario of a football industry collapse. And when that happens, you know, we're always looking at the players, the, play, the, the wage cuts, the, you know, who's behaving, who's not behaving. I mean, you, Jack Grealish. But when football is hit, the players aren't the ones that take that hit at the beginning. It's the thousands of jobs, not the major ones, more the minor, the stewards, the ticket office operatives, the training ground maintenance. Those are the ones that get it. I mean, that is the darkness on the edge of town to me in ways we can't even predict right now. Football being, or Premier League football, especially a $1.7 billion business for Britain, which is an enormous part of the economy, an enormous part of that sector. Having said that, 14 Premier League teams need to agree for a path forward. 14 teams need to agree for a scenario that makes sense to play. 14 teams could come together to void the season. And that is what we're flip-flopping between. I can say the four teams at the bottom of the table are reported 
by Miguel Delaney and the Independent to be actively pushing for a voided season because they feel that the money guaranteed from staying in the Premier League for another season will be greater than the money that they can't give back to broadcasters if the league doesn't finish by July 16th. Harry Kane taught yesterday that if the league doesn't wrap up by the end of June, he thinks it should be voided as it wouldn't feel like a continuous competition. But ultimately, self-interest is the thing that is going to dictate that. Self-interest is the only thing that can stop Liverpool now. I will say I loved Opta calculating a model to predict the end of this season. They had, for what it's worth, Norwich, Aston Villa and Bournemouth relegated. Watford fans, oh, celebrate now for what that's worth. And Liverpool, they had winning the title with 101 points, which would be an all-time English top flight record. I I did a Liverpool podcast this week, the Red Men, and I, f- I do feel for Liverpool fans because the more time sets in, the more memory is eroded and the more the more the now feels different to the then, the more the abandonment of the season, which I couldn't even conceive of two weeks, but just by stasis starts to feel like a, a dis- distinct possibility. And that season of energy, that season of wonder, that season of tenacity, of collective brilliance by Liverpool, in which only Watford topped them, God, it would be it would be tragic if that was just finally undone by the darkness of this pandemic and, and by inertia. I think one point to always remember when thinking about the Premier League, especially from an American sports perspective, and that you have to sort of adjust your thinking, is the Premier League sits atop a a a pyramid um, of football clubs throughout England and Wales. And these are clubs. Yes, at the elite basis, these are enormous businesses, but these are clubs that represent communities. Um, And the communities are not just the owners and not just the players and not just the fans, but they are the people who work around the club and literally work in the businesses around the club. How much have we been struck by that during our Visit Britain uh, films about the businesses that sit within the ability to sort of hear the chants in the stadiums on a Saturday afternoon. Um, these are enormous communities and they do a lot of work within the community and they were formed by a bond with the community. And I think there is there is a, a level of trust. Now that can play both ways, but I think that self-interest is a very difficult thing to quantify in thinking about football because self-interest by clubs, it's not usually just one greedy owner that has happened and it does happen. But I actually even have sympathy for the clubs at the bottom who were believing that, of course, they might be able to fight their way out of the relegation zone as many clubs have before. Um, and I don't think that's merely self-interest. That's thinking about their entire community and the effect on their entire community at the point that they go down. So I have sympathy for everybody. We're in completely unprecedented times, uncharted waters. Nobody has any sense of, of how to work their way out of it. A lot of people are going to be unhappy with whatever solution is come up with, but I cannot believe that ultimately that figuring out a way to play rather than not play is the wrong answer. I think figuring out a way to play at the earliest opportunity, and obviously that has to be done with public health at the forefront of, of thought, but I, I think it would be good to, to play out this season. The only team I care about right now, Davo, is Darwin FC. Oh. Everyone's yeah. favourite factory <laughs> really? team. Yeah. Come on, Fergus Sutter. Come on, James Jimmy Love. Oh, yeah. Dave, let's take some GFOP questions because our mailbag overfloweth. 
I am loving your chat shit, get answered pods on Mondays and Fridays, Rog. GFOPs, keep your voicemails coming. That number is 646-450-9472. Once again, 646-450-9472. We're going to take one now. Cool cats and kittens. Let's do it. WGFOP. The ball. Roger, this is Michael Lee from Washington, D.C., and I'm an Everton fan. Um, I'm calling wondering um, what's your favorite moment as a fan of sports or football uh, from your high school days was. Thanks, big fan. Take a later. Bye. Oh, Rog, your favorite moment as a sports fan from your high school days. Oh, Michael in Washington, D.C. That is, that is, you know, we've talked about this a little bit on my podcast with my childhood friend Jamie Glassman last week. When I look back on my life, this may shock you. Brace yourself, listeners. I don't really remember the win so much. The happiness, the celebration, and there were great moments of happiness. There have been, I promise you. Everton won the FA Cup several times. I won the league, 84, 85, 86, 87. It's the savage, cruel, twisted losses that I remember. Those are what define me. And nothing, nothing felt crueler, nor opened my eyes to the inherent injustice that is life. Than this date, Davo, 22nd June 1986, World Cup quarterfinals at the Azteca Mexico City, England 1, Argentina 2. A darkness and injustice suffered by our nation that really seared my heart as a kid, a wound that has never really healed. I wrote about it in our book, Encyclopedia Blazer Tanica, about Diego Maradona's destruction of... They were my heroes, my beloved heroes, by means most foul. It was really a crash course in ethics. The game played in the shadows of 1982's Falklands conflict. Maradona scored two of the most celebrated World Cup goals of all time for different reasons. One, illegitimate, in which he used his left fist to reach over, I still don't understand this, a six-foot-one goalkeeper. How did you let that happen? And he punched the ball into the net, a goal that became known as the hand of God. He's so good at press. Once Maradona admitted it had been scored, quote, a little with the head of Diego and a little with the hand of God. Four minutes later, we were all still reeling. The nation was reeling. Scored a solo goal that even God would have problems replicating, single-handedly lacerated the entire English team, turning, in the words of a British commentator, like a little eel. I mean, it was breathtaking. The English midfield, covering Maradona, tried to foul him every step of the way, just kept going and going. And one, one of them players, Steve Hodge, said later, all he could do was to resist the urge to clap as the ball went over the line. It was like watching your heroes be emasculated. I was so devastated at the final whistle that my brother Nigel and I charged outside just for in need of an emotional release that can only be gained by playing football in the street. And I was full of grief. I was so angry. I needed to vent. And I just, from from the street, blasted the first shot that I had the opportunity to take straight through the window of our home, straight through the lounge window, just tinkling glass everywhere, shattered glass falling from the window frame. And my dad came outside to find me just standing in the middle of the road, tears of anger, just snotty, tears of anger, still stinging. And I remember my dad just looked at me. I thought he was going to be furious. I thought he was going to go ballistic. 
for my dad shared our pain and he just hugged us both and he said, I understand, lads. I understand. Arguably, Davo, I've never been the same person again. Oh, Rod. What was it so for you? Beautiful. It was certainly wasn't certainly wasn't depressing moments in English sport, um, <laughs> which was not, which is amazing because the question was your favourite moment, and we just do know that these depressing moments were also your favourite moments. Um, for me, nothing to do with football. Neither of my favourite memories have anything to do with football, partly because it was so tough to access on television. Other than World Cups, where England were almost universally disappointing, um, as were Scotland. Um, so for me, it's the 1980 Moscow Olympics, Rog. Um, during the, you know, the halcyon era of English middle distance running, the movie Chariots of Fire, and England had two amazing middle distance runners, Sebastian Coe and Steve Ovet. Steve Ovet, powerful, brilliant runner. I was a middle distance runner in, in, in high school as well. He was favoured in the 1500 metres at the, at the 80 Olympics. Sebastian Coe, such a graceful, lithe runner. He was favoured in the 800. Instead, Ovet, in the most gripping race, he won the gold medal in the, uh, in the 800, uh, beating Sebastian Coe to silver. But then that gold medal race and Sebastian Coe, just look it up on YouTube, winning the 1500. It is just the classic way you want to win a 1500 meter race, coming off the shoulder on the final turn, sprinting away, still so much gas in the tank. That was really, for me, thrilling. I would also say Ian Botham's performance in the third test at Headingley against Australia in 1981. But I'd have to explain the rules of cricket to explain how that works. A little run around the uh, four laps uh, around an oval, that's much easier to understand. Oh, mate, I've got to say, I've got the thickening just listening to you. That was a deeply embedded memory that it feels great. It feels great to share one more time. Let's take a raven, David. Yeah, the old-fashioned way, Vim. Men in Blazers at gmail.com, Roger. It's from Brinley Hull. Yes. What a great name, Brinley Hull. He writes, greetings from a GFOP in Sydney, Australia. We're also in social distancing slash isolation mode here in Sydney. Thought I'd share the three things keeping me sane in these unprecedented times. One, my gap wedge golf club and golf mat. Time to improve my chipping game. Davo would appreciate the importance of a good short game in golf. Oh, I've got so much to say about this. Two, my guitar. I used to play in indie rock bands, and now I've actually managed to learn to play fingerpick style. Tracy Chapman's fast car, thanks to YouTube guitar teachers and Roger's constant reminder of the song. It's a total joy to play, and it tames my anxiety during these times. And number three, I can also relate to this, wine. We all need <laughs> fermented grapes in times like this. I'm still working and going to work as I work in a Sydney children's hospital as an infectious diseases slash vaccination epidemiologist. Wow. So plenty of work coming my way in the coming weeks slash months. Stay safe, gents, and please keep the podcast coming. They're so much appreciated in this difficult time. I get a smile on my face. Every listen, courage to all, Bryn. Oh, what a great Raven Roger. Oh, what a great man. Thanks for your service, Bryn. I mean, to be honest, what's keeping me sane is in many ways it's my work communicating with all you GFOPs all day every day uh, you know I'm trying to keep busy I think creativity is really critical in these times and connection is really critical um, and also thinking about who you are and what you want to be and how you want to change so I've actually I'm going to talk more about this in the weeks to come I've actually started work 
on a book I've wanted to write for a long time, but actually, actually do it instead of talking about it. Action, really important to me right now. Started work on a book about, oh, about the Liverpool College breaking crew days in England. <laughs> <laughs> it's a movie, Rog. It's a movie. Can I sign up to produce the film? Mate, I love this. Mate, it is. It is. I've got to say, it makes Tiger King seem like normality, mate. The more I write, it is. It is stuff. I'm going to send you some. Uh, really, it's a book about the things that made me love and be drawn to America in the first place. I'm really trying to recapture that period of time when America's soft power and America's global leadership were just so poignant to thousands, to millions of us around the world and reconnecting to that time. I mean, Bryn, in terms of what else is really giving me nourishment, eating dinners with my entire family on an every night basis has been incredibly centering incredibly meaningful and a new thing that i've picked back up like your guitar brin is is pool i used to be we've never talked about this i save it for my other my other uh, podcast shot weekly i used to be quite the the pool hustler in the old days my look away shot on the black if i have a signature skill that was it my ps de resistance and i haven't played in years but i'm now playing again on a nightly basis and slowly, 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 the muscle memory's coming back as I hustle my eight-year-old Oz fast Eddie Felsen style. <laughs> oh, I'd love the idea of doing a Men in Blazers uh, eight-ball invitational. I love the idea. That's <sighs> superb. What about you, David? Look, I mean, I really relate, Bryn, um, to two things you write about. One, golf. I've got my... I've had all my wedges out, Bryn, not just my gap wedge. Uh, I've been practicing my chipping. I'd say my chipping is probably the weakest part. My pitching is very good. My putting is pretty good. My my chipping is not the strongest part of my game. So I've got my gat wedges, and I constantly try to decide between the 52 and the 54. But I've got my 54 out. I've got my 56 and 60. I've got my pitching wedge. I've even got a 9-iron, 8-iron occasionally that I chip with. I've been working on my chipping a lot. Unfortunately, every time I practice chipping and I come up with new techniques and I work on things, I always come back to the same thing which is I'm much better playing with just one hand. But it's kind of like, you know, shooting free throws uh, <laughs> underarm style. Um, that It's sort of embarrassing. Nobody wants to do it. But I do chip and actually putt better with one hand rather than two hands. So maybe when I come back, I've reached an age now at 54 that really if I want to go and chip and putt one-handed, I should be allowed to. Uh, and then wine. I have been drinking wine. I've gone off the tequila. I'm about to go dry April, I think. But... Um, I have been drinking wine. I've been enjoying, Rog, just a new taste, Chianti. I've been drinking a lot of um, Chianti Super Classico um, and really, really enjoying that stuff. Um, uh, just a lovely wine. It's For me, I know not all wine lovers will agree, it sits somewhere between a sort of a, a, sort of a, a heavy Bordeaux and, and a lighter Burgundy. It's just a, it's just a really nice, um, just satisfying mid-range wine. I love a Chianti. Mate, when I drink Chianti, which I try to often, I raise a glass, whether you're with me or you're not with me, I raise a glass to you. It so reminds me of, oh, mate, I've got to say, whenever I drink a red, which is most often a Malbec, but I do. Yeah, you love a Malbec. I love an Embeck. I raise a glass to you, Davo, and it reminds me of the time we shared together in Pamplona, some of the greatest red wines of my life. Big love to all the GFOPs 
Oh, in Italy, all the GFOPs in Spain listening now. We raise a glass of red in your general direction. What else, David? Well, I mean, work. I've been, you know, um, and so grateful to you for everything you've been doing with Men in Blazers, but I've been with my embassy row work, getting millionaire posted and finished, and then um, just dealing with everything else. You know, the, the world of, we've managed to get Andy Cohen show back on the air last night. Um, that goes on every night from now on, Talking Dead back on the air. Um, and we're just figuring out ways to put shows on the air in a, you know, from a virtual basis, producing over Zoom. What did we do in the world before Zoom? Did Zoom start the coronavirus? I have no idea, Rog. Um, but um, it's a, uh, you know, life has changed and we're doing a lot of work for brands, producing virtual events for them. And I think for the foreseeable future, this is going to be a business that we are uh, very busy doing. And I think for me, it's keeping, you know, Embassy Row as a business with, you know, several employees, but it also has dozens and dozens and dozens of freelancers. And like a lot of other business owners out there, I'm sure you relate, I feel a tremendous responsibility to keep on employing those freelancers and to work as hard as I can to make sure that the freelancers, you know, continue to keep their salaries and keep their benefits, you know, throughout this period. Yeah, I prefer a world in which Zoom was just a magical single by Fat Larry's band, David. (laughs) I haven't thought about that for a second. No, my mate. I did, though. I did, though, play the other day uh, for my partner, Christine, who is Italian-American. She'd never heard Shut Up In Your Face by Joe Dolce. And I played it for her the other day, and she just loved it. She goes, how have I lived my entire life and never heard this song? Oh, mate, are you sure she's Italian-American properly? If she's not heard Joe Dolce, shut up in your face. She is an evangelista from Staten Island. She is a, she's full-on Italian-American. Never heard it. Never heard the song. That's, that's, like, that's like someone Jewish. Someone saying they're Jewish and never having heard having the gear. Fat Lammy's fan, though, that is classic Rando Rodge. I have not thought about that in about 20... It's like a early disco song by a band that you would not have a... You would not call yourself Fat Larry's band... In the year 2020. But I'm going to Google that as soon as we're done. Okay, Rog, another old school raven. This one from Jules in Cleveland, who writes, Hey, y'all, while there is no sports happening and the pending doom of the full brunt of COVID-19, I'm finding cooking to be very soothing. Are there any noshes, ethnic or otherwise, that Brenda Jean or Val made that warm the cockles of your hearts? Is there something that Mrs. B or the former or future Mrs. Davises would cook that you find particularly comforting? I'm trying to keep myself from going full James Milner. God, much love to you, Jules from Cleveland. Dave, is there a, uh, is there, is there a dish... That is your, like, Proust Madeline. Um, i got to tell you, my mom, Brenda Jean Davis, was a very, very good cook. And there were things that she used to cook that I loved. But I don't, I don't cook them now. The chicken rice, the spaghetti bolognese that she made, that she baked uh, after she cooked it. Um, uh, what I've been enjoying right now, I just mentioned, uh, Christine, that the, I've been enjoying various... This has been eating sausages and peppers. A lot of the good Italian-American dishes that she grew up learning to cook on uh, on Staten Island. I've been enjoying. I've been enjoying that. But I've been craving certain things during this uh, crisis. I've just got a an unbelievable sort of um, fixation on white chocolate. All of a sudden, I just want white chocolate more than anything. Um, 
of course, espresso, which is like a a uh, a very regular thing, and cheese. Rog, I've eaten I've eaten my weight in cheese several times over since this whole thing began. That is my stress food, cheese, without any doubt. I'm, and so, at least a dozen listeners start work on carving Davo out of cheese. That is a be- a life size Davo made out of cheese is a yeah. beautiful idea. I've been craving stuff randomly. Humboldt fog, please. Humboldt fog. That would be my cheese of choice. I can't tell you how often i've thought about like the juicy lucy's at matt's in minnesota or the hot chicken at prince's in nashville just as we have wombled around this great nation just dropping in to these spots oh fox's barbecue in atlanta how i long to taste them again and how i perhaps i mean i savored them when we were there but took that ability to perambulate around our nation almost for granted but this question jules about my mother Val, I mean, I will say, like many of you, I ate to be away from my mother right now. I was meant to actually be home with my family over over Easter, over Passover. And one of the most interesting side effects of quarantine life is that finally, after 10 years, my parents have realized I have a podcast. And they're now first-time listeners, long-time callers. Shout out to Val and Iva. I've changed my behaviour, you will have noticed, Dave, on these podcasts now because my mum and dad are now both listening. (laughs) Food, to me, is a memory, though. I can't... Just the thought oh, and the taste of my mum's apple cake or a chopped liver or a cornflake chicken with with canned pineapple on. Fantastic dish. Do not cringe, (laughs) America. Do not judge me, America. That That was like just a high level cuisine. Uh, by English standards when I was going up. But that, that, just the thought of it is really the thought of a sense of place, a, a, a sense of feeling, a sense of a sense of love, really. That is the feeling that I think of, the feeling of l- being loved and the feeling of love. And, and so the dish I miss most is my mum's chicken soup. And it's f- funny that you say about your mum's dishes, David, they, they do taste different. When you make them, even if you do have the recipe on a piece of paper, it's almost worthless. It's almost useless without the person itself. You know, every mum where I grew up in Liverpool, every single kid swore that their mum's chicken soup was the best. Everyone, Mm. everyone just believed their mum's chicken soup was just the bona fide chicken soup. And I'll say it now because I've got a podcast and no one else does. My mum's chicken soup legit was the best. And I crave some now terribly more than I can say. And just following a recipe... It doesn't lead to that same taste at all. Only she can make it like only your mum, Brenda Jean, could make that incredible baked, what was it? Baked spaghetti. So yeah, baked spaghetti. Yeah. I mean, if you made it, Dave, it just wouldn't, it would be almost worthless. It's the thought of it, the taste is the taste of unbridled support and love, a mother's love. And that would be it for me, the chicken soup. I now want some of Val's chicken soup as well. Oh, I said, may, may we soon please God, Davo. That is one thing I'm going to do with you. With everyone else in my life that I love, uh, who's had time of challenge, I've said we're going to raise a pint. Please God, you and I will dine on some of Val's chicken soup because I said at the top, we are podding at a time of true challenge. And I want to end by paying tribute to your father, Trevor Dupont Davis, who three days ago passed... And I'll just say, you know, a heart goes out to you, Davo. Thousands of GFOPs have written in. I know they've been thinking about you a lot over the past couple of days. And to lose someone in these dark times 
It is a true test of the human spirit, David. Um, Raj, thank you. And honestly, thank you to so many GFOPs have reached out over social media and email and um, I've received letters um, and I'm moved, moved um, beyond words by your kindness and your thoughts and your compassion. And thank you so much and for the stories you've shared about your own loss and so sorry for your own losses. Um, and it's been really wonderful. Yes, these have been weird times. It's a very weird time to lose uh, to lose someone because the whole world is in this crisis, both real and existential. And um, it's complicated everything from being able to be with him to funeral arrangements to, you know, estate and probate. Everything is just so complex. Um, but that's the bad stuff. The good stuff is this is a man who lived to almost 91 years old, had the most sensational life um, and career, you know, grew up out on the Thames Estuary on the North Kent coast and described as thrilling, what we would describe as terrifying growing up during the war and German bombers dropping their bombs on the way back to Northern France all over his <laughs> hometown of Whitstable. He thought it was the most thrilling way to grow up, um, uh, to be right there in Hellfire Alley. Um, worked on building sites, went to art school, joined the army very young, which, you know, changed his life, became an engineer, became an architect, traveled the world, served his country, did relief work in West Africa, where he met my mum, Rog, in a conga line in a nightclub in Ghana, in West Africa, when they were both doing relief work out there. As you do. And as you do, um, <laughs> would love to. Would love to go back and see Trevor Brend in that nightclub in Accra. I'd, I'd love to know what song was playing. Um, Probably Zoom and, by Fat Larry's band. <laughs> yeah, it could have been. It could have been. Um, and came back and um, built and raised this family. And you know, my brother has gone on to tremendous success as a screenwriter and showrunner. My sister, an internationally renowned mezzo-soprano opera singer. And then me, the failure of the family, um, you know, a television producer and executive in the United States, and now a uh, and now a football podcaster, <laughs> and um, <laughs> the black sheep of the family. So he had an incredible life, achieved so much, was just good at so many things, great with his hands, great at gardening, rapier wit, um, a sense of duty that ran through his entire life, both public, professional, um, um, military, in private business, and to his family and to his wife, um, and to his grandchildren, his kids, um, and beloved by many, but what a life. And so to me, what I take out of it, and to me, what I say to everyone, we're all captive in our homes, not all, but most of us captive in our homes listening to this. We are, I think, all moved by a sense of duty, so inspired by those in the emergency services who are doing so much uh, and risking so much and the essential services too, you know, let's not forget the people working in grocery stores, making sure our food is delivered, um, making sure we're fed and clothed, people keeping the supply chain going. But we're sitting, most of us, in some form captive. And when we get out of these apartments, these homes, these bedrooms, these living rooms, these time that is well spent with our family reflecting on the simpler pleasures of life. You know, may we all go out and make something of our life 
And that's the inspiration I take from my father. He made something out of his entire life. He made something out of every day of his life. As a teenager, I never understood why he was so anxious for me to get out of bed and get up and be productive. It was always so annoying to me that at 7 a.m. in the morning, he was already walking around outside my door, making a lot of noise so I'd get out of bed. But my God, I understand it now. You know, we need to get out of bed in the morning and we need to do something with our lives and we need to be productive, all of us. Uh, even if it is just write a book about the Liverpool College breaking crew, Rog, we need to, uh, we need to do what we say and say what we do. And um, that's the inspiration I'm taking and we should all take from a great, long-lived life. So I'm sad, but I'm also delighted I knew him. I'm delighted he had such a great life. And uh, coming back to what I said at the beginning, thank you all so much. Thank you, Roger. Um, and thank you to the entire community of GFOPs who've just been so kind and so compassionate and just for your thoughts and to be in your thoughts. It means the world. Amen, Dave. Amen. He was a, he was an idiosyncratic English gentleman in a way the country really used to produce. And if it's any solace, I think you've encouraged a ton of listeners over the past couple of weeks to think about their own relationships to their parents at this crucial time, our roles as, as fathers, as mothers, as sons, as daughters. And you know, the thing I've taken is what you've just said. I, I've taken it from you every week when we've spoken. Never take any of these moments of these relationships for granted. We have had a, a mailbag that has overflowed. And I just want to read one of thousands of letters to you, Davo, to close. It's from a GFOP, Christopher Dill. Um, who dropped us a line with condolences to you. His letter is beautiful. Christopher Dill wrote, I'm so sorry to read that Michael's father's passed on, especially during these awful times as if things weren't bad enough. Regardless, my thoughts and yes, prayers to and for Michael, his family and all who know and loved his father. I remember watching one of the Men in Blazers episodes where a photo of an older Premier League referee came up on the screen he had a rather disgruntled countenance and Michael commented saying, that's how my father looks after an American has just hugged him. <laughs> <laughs> he, says, he says, that still makes me laugh. And I glean from that quip that father and son must have been so close and no doubt would have shared a similar beautiful sense of humour. May Mr. Davis rest in peace. Amazing, David. Yeah, thank you so much for that. My father, certainly not much of a hugger. <laughs> he was <laughs> he was challenged by Americans all of the time. I used to hug him. I Last time I saw him, actually, I hugged him. And one of my things I always did with my dad is I would hug him and I would hold on just a little bit too long, knowing it was driving him absolutely <laughs> out of his mind. I love holding on just a little bit too long. I can never resist it. Um, oh, but that's something we should all do let's face it uh thank you so much rog i really love you oh, may his memory be a blessing to you in good times and bad davo oh courage <laughs>